It's November 15th, 2021. This is Rook. He is an Iranian-American agricultural expert who spent years working with the Environmental Protection Agency in the States, but you'll more likely know his name from his chart-topping musical group, Shaheen and Seper. Seper Haddad is a musician and creative force who's tasted the glory of being a successful recording artist and playing in front of adoring crowds. Now Seper has released his first novel, a fascinating tale of romance and his star-studded Iranian lineage. Seper Haddad joins me for a feature interview, plus we have your letters of the week. This is Conversations From, To, and About the Iranian Diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 155 of Rook. Rolls off the tongue, huh? 155. Nice to be talking to you. Hope you're keeping well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. Hello to you as ever from Toronto, Canada. Salam Dustan Aziz. Seper Haddad. Such an interesting guy. First of all, I didn't even know he's been working at the Environmental Protection Agency all these years. I figured he's just, I just know him as a musician. Uh, from Shaheen and Seper fame, who do um, instrumental music. Yes. I mean, very, very uh, likable instrumental music that uh, it's no no surprise that they've had some uh, hits and, and some real billboard chart-topping yes, success. Yes. Um, but now he's put out this novel, which is really interesting because it's a novel, meaning that it's fictionalized, but it's based on his own lineage and this story of his grandfather who was Nasrul Sultan Minbashian and how his grandfather had uh, a secret a furtive uh, romance with the niece of the Russian Tsar wow Uh, yes that's crazy Uh, so there's some um there's some sex, uh, Reza. Well, you pointing some, at me? I don't know. I just thought, <laughs> you know, it might, be, it might be the first book you ever read. Something he's not getting. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> Actually, there isn't a lot of sex. <laughs> There's romance. I just thought maybe I would entice you somehow. <laughs> What are you uh, going to no, say it, when it, you're there, pointing at Shaya? There's, well, there's <laughs> music. I mean, because yes, uh, yes. Nasser Sultan Mimbashian and, and his father, yes, uh, what the, I mean, these guys were uh, pioneers of the Tehran Conservatory of Music, of yeah. the first national anthem of Iran. All of that is entwined in this story that Seper tells in this novel uh, in a very accessible way. I mean, it's a, it's a great story as well. Mm. So 
looking forward to having him on. And he's had such an interesting career himself. Uh, it's a curious decision to put out a novel now after being a musician all these years mm. and being a, an agricultural dude. Yet so Jack Persian. of all trades. <laughs> yes, all, all things that Reza cannot do. <laughs> uh, a well, talented still person. Time. You never know. <laughs> uh, I can write a book about sex. Trust me. <laughs> How not to do it. Did you, you, you really just said that? Uh, the, that is Captain Reza. By the way, oh when you look, we can think about talent. I mean, he's a captain. Not just anybody can be a captain. That's, That's right. right. Uh, captain Reza, Groovy Shia, huh. and the fabulous Keon. You guys see the. Uh, we posted a, a clip of our, our interview with uh, Kambi Soseni, mm. oh, the yeah. broadcaster, yesterday. It's it's lighting up Instagram, yeah. thousands and thousands of views, because it was a provocative moment of the, the interview where Kambi uh, goes off on Iranians, yeah. <laughs> Iranians in Iran, yeah. you know, saying yeah. that, because that, I, I kind of say, well, why did you leave Iran? Was it, you know, the repression for you as an artist? He's like, no, I don't like the people. <laughs> and then goes on about it. I mean, he, he I applaud him for his candor, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is Kambi Sassani. He doesn't, he doesn't mince words, mm-hmm. right? But, uh, but yeah, it's drawing the uh, yeah. ire of some folks. It drew so. himself in. He got involved in the comment section. Oh, did he? I don't, did, did he respond to people in the... Sh- yeah. yeah, he was getting yeah. into it with <laughs> some of the audience. He's such a scrapper. It was it's pretty so hilarious. good. It's not going to lie. Anyway, go to our Rook Media, uh, our Instagram, or go to our YouTube Extras channel, and you can see that... Uh, clip with Kambi Sasani uh, and uh, and the trouble it's causing uh, uh, I, I'm you know I'm such a fan of his I think he's such a I think he's a he's a really talented broadcaster and uh, the guy's got opinions though he knows how to stir the pot you know yeah. Uh, we're coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms. We're on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. And we're doing this through different programs now as well. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox. If you'd like to see some visuals with Rook, you can switch over to YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and in Persian and in Farsi, check us out on telegram and hey you can become a patron of this show help support us by pressing the support us button strangely enough on our website rookmedia.com and uh become a patron for five or ten dollars a month or more if you can afford it we appreciate it um so one of the things i did all weekend is i'm binge watching the new season of uh, narcos mm. narcos mexico, mexico. Now. Yeah. narcos started in colombia Right. And now, and now, and I guess the series was so popular. Now they've been doing Narcos uh, Mexico, and uh, I, I mean, I, I love this. Uh, it's on Netflix. And uh, have anybody been watching yeah, Narcos? Yeah. I watched yeah. the old seasons. Okay, so all right. Yeah, Shy, have you? No. I'm well, okay. I mean, first of all, I I say this. Uh, I said this about Squid Game as well, but it seems like it's just become the norm now. And I and Netflix has played a big role in this, but. I have to say, a series that is one of the top watched mm-hmm. series in the English world mm-hmm. that is in Spanish, I just think is awesome. It's First great. of all, I just think Amazing. that's great. I think that's that. I don't believe that's something that would have happened no. years ago. Yeah. Even when I was like a teenager and I was into art house movies, you'd go see the foreign film. You know, yeah. it would be the movie that was subtitled, and you know, only a certain crowd would have the appetite mm-hmm. to go see. Now there's a, a hit series that's subtitled. Yeah. It's I mean, there's probably a lot of Spanish speaking people as well who yeah. who watch it in the states or whatever. But you know, it's all in Spanish and and it's really really compelling and and frankly the Americans 
are not the heroes necessarily. You know, I mean, yeah. mm-hmm. they're kind of the good guys at times, but they're also the bad narcs and, you know. And and interestingly, the you kind of, I mean, I don't know if you felt like this at the first season with Pablo mm-hmm. Escobar, but mm-hmm. you kind of, I mean, I like the way they play this out because yeah. you kind of, the, the drug traffickers, <laughs> you know, who them. would always be the bad guys in <laughs> yeah, any yeah. movie that are kind of sympathetic characters. <laughs> right, like, right. You know, they're nuanced. Yeah. You sort of like them because yeah. they're not one-dimensional bad That's guys. Right. They're, you know, interesting people. But in some parts, in some places, they come from nothing and they're mm-hmm. trying to make, you know, yeah. uh, and they're, they have support of their fellow citizens and whatever. Um so one of the interesting things about Marcos, uh, Marcos, Marcos. Narcos, Marcos also Marcos, <laughs> but Narcos, Mexico, is that the characters, um, it's set in the 1980s, right? Yeah. And Felix is the main guy, well, the main drug trafficker, there's some other, but anyway, the characters, including the American DEA, are smoking constantly through the whole series they're smoking now no big deal whatever right uh because at the time Mm. people were smoking uh, you know in the 1980s and also people were definitely smoking in mexico and people were definitely smoking if they work in the drug trade right and these dea guys so so everybody in the series is chain smoking like literally every scene now that's interesting because in the last 20 years in North America, as you would know, Captain Reza, as yes, a person sir. who creates uh, television and film, you can't show smoking. Uh, you know, they, and, and network TV, they they took smoking out because it was considered a bad influence. I on, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah well, on network TV. Well, think about it. When was the last time on a major network TV show you saw smoking? Uh you don't see it. You, don't. you might see it if they're outside because it has mm-hmm. to sort of comply with the, but you will not see some, but somebody inside oh, smoking. Oh, inside, okay. Well, I mean, which is most of television and film. You, so, you, you simply don't, nor do you see any cigarette ads, obviously. So how does you know? Narcos do it if it's... Well, Narcos is on Netflix. Mm-hmm. So Netflix, one of the ways that Netflix is changing the game, it's that it's, it's it, those rules, I guess, don't apply to Netflix. Yeah. And mm. so, so these characters, we can debate the rules of whether it makes makes sense to have smoking and TV or, or not, especially with period pieces. It was just sort of weird that, yeah. you know, to not have them smoke mm-hmm. at some time. But the effect that it's had, and I guess the effect that they were trying to avoid by, you know, when, when taking the smoking out of mm-hmm. uh, TV, is that it makes me want to smoke now. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm Stop. watching these guys, I'm like, they're cool. so cool. <laughs> like these drug traffickers, you know, I'm I like, light up a I gotta go on the patch, I gotta wean myself <laughs> on to smoke. I, I've I mean, never smoked in my life. I was gonna say. But now I'm thinking, you know, drugs and smoking <laughs> oh, and man. drinking, I mean, it looks so cool. <laughs> Did you guys ever smoke? I I never. I, I used, never to used to smoke. I was gonna ask in the middle, like at least when I was in the Middle East, everybody smoked. Well, that's the thing. I, when I was in Turkey like, a couple months ago, everybody oh. was still smoking. So in Iran, I'm guessing that you can smoke on TV because mm-hmm. everybody smokes. No, still. no, no, mm-hmm. no. Oh, okay. On TV, no, it's forbidden. It's uh, it's forbidden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not Islamic forbidden. No, no, no. Just like, because yeah, of health, a kind of. But yeah. doesn't don't people still smoke in Iran? Yeah, yeah. They, they, actually, recently it, it got, it's kind of changed. But no, smoke everywhere like in the cafeteria yeah. so taking it off TV was that hasn't helped no <laughs> because they, they so you can still smoke inside yes uh huh yeah. yeah, but you know uh, and these rules about not showing it on TV and and, mm. and film. I guess it's like, I mean, 
you know, it's supposed to apply to kids, but even me, I'm like, <laughs> oh, God. why am I not a drug trafficker? <laughs> <laughs> it looks awesome. It's not you know, too you, late. you get to drink and you, you know, you're smoking all the time and then you make money, deals yeah. and then you get yell at somebody and you shoot them. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> they wear expensive clothes. It's nice, man. Yeah. And yeah. they kind of look, the, the, I mean, they sort of look Iranian in some cases. <laughs> they like do. The, so, they yeah. actually do. Some of the, some of the, it's the, the greasy, <laughs> yeah. the Mexican uh, drug lord. And stuff. Yeah. Well, that guy could be. He could play. Uh, you know, he could play man of chair. In the, in the, I can, in I can see you playing a, a drug lord. <laughs> I, know. I, I kid, of course, uh, for those uh, alarmed. Uh, I do not want to become a drug trafficker. I'm just saying it looks cool. Yeah. If we catch you smoking one of these, <laughs> I swear to God, I want to learn. I've never liked it. it doesn't suit well. I'm more. an asthmatic. It's not good for me. That's right. Yeah, I no, I, can't, I know. This smoke. is the problem. Otherwise, I could be one of these cool guys from the 80s. <laughs> one of these cool guys. Yeah. Even during your days in the band, you no, never, never got smoked. into smoking? Never smoked. Good no, for no. you, man. Respect. No. I mean, pot, hash, okay, you know, yeah. but not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> those, Heroin, those are, those are clean, no. those are clean drugs. Smoking, you know, crystal meth, but no, not smoking. <laughs> Do heavy stuff. My mother is like, Chidori Miki, Chero in Chizara. Saying you want to try being a drug lord. I, I'm just saying it looks, <laughs> I'm saying that Netflix has provided me <laughs> with an option of what an interesting, listen, I haven't watched to the end of the series. Maybe okay. bad things happen maybe. to the drug traffickers. Just maybe. Uh, kind of like what happened to Escobar. Exactly. So. <laughs> no, it doesn't end well. All right. I'm just saying in the middle of it, it's, you know, fun and ride? even their lives right now, it's, a, it's <laughs> terrible. I mean, this Felix guy is running around trying to stay away from the DEA. They're trying to kill him, but I, but you know, at times he's you know, he's got a cigarette, and then the DEA guy goes after him. He's got a cigarette in his mouth, and everybody's got a cigarette. And I thought, oh, maybe this is what the cool guys do. You know, it could be the DEA agent. See, Reza, you should smoke deal. for sure. I think because you're a kind of a good-looking oh guy. What? That's why he's so good-looking because he doesn't smoke. Oh, is that well, why? Wait a minute. You do I look like a kind of guy who smokes? Yeah, you do. You totally look like a guy. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the director. No, the guy who'd have he just have it like hanging out of the you know the guys who talk and it's hanging out of the mouth. Hanging out of their mouth. Smoking is bad. Don't do it. Smoking is bad. I have never smoked. I don't think it's a good thing to do. But if you're a drug trafficker, it's Hey, these the are life. jokes. These are jokes. Uh, I, man, I once got banned from a folk fe- like a, literally our, our group got banned. We played at this folk festival, and and uh, and I had said, uh, kids, uh, you know, don't uh, don't smoke pot. It's not good. To- this is back when pot was illegal. Of course, yeah, now yeah, everybody's yeah. running around and it's opening. Captain Reza's got three cannabis shops. He's opened already. <laughs> uh, so, or whatever, right? What are you doing? You're investing in it. I don't know what you're doing. So, uh, uh, no, and I, I was on stage and I said, uh, kids out there, there's like thousands of people that don't, I, you know, you should not smoke pot. It's bad for you. You should try hash. It's smoother. Oh it was God. just a joke, right? Oh then they banned God. us from oh the no. festival. And yeah. Oh so no. now, you know, but what are you going to ban from Rook from? That, That's true. You know, I mean, you know, it's just a, yeah, I'm just saying that Netflix has changed the game again. You know, it was yeah. that what you were saying? That's that's what I was all saying. I got from that is, is that smoking is cool. <laughs> well, just watch it. I mean, this, you I know. have. Yes, you're <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? They make it look cool. They make yeah. it look cool. They're, but all, you know, they're all what smoking. What show and got me excited about smoking? I never one? did. Was Mad Men. Oh yes. Yes. yes, and drinking in the office. I think Mad Men they could smoke because it was 
I'm it not sure. It, cable it was it was it cable was, and also I guess HBO. it's a period piece. Yeah, it's a period piece and it was uh, it was AMC. So yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's yeah. Very Man, that show made me wish I was a dude in the fifties, just really, smoking yeah. and mm. drinking in the office. See, sla- slapping asses <laughs> like, hey, toots, <laughs> get me a coffee. Right, right, right. <laughs> That's what I. <laughs> hey, Seper Haddad, uh, I does not advocate smoking. <laughs> this right. is if you are a fan, if you're tuning in for yeah. Seper Haddad, he does not, and uh, nor do we. It's just a conversation about how the Moors, how things have changed yes. on the screens around the world. And I'm fascinated that in Iran that there's no smoking on no, TV. And, and no uh, so so like maybe that's a universal rule, maybe. I guess. Hey, a big shout out. A big shout out, Keon. I'm here. Katy Kavandi Immigration Services, Inc. Yeah. <laughs> Please stop moving like that. It's freaking me out. Katy Kavandi Immigration Services. Please stop dancing if that's what you were doing. <laughs> Katy Kavandi Immigration Services, Inc. is a certified by the Immigration Consultants of Canada Regulatory Council, delivers exceptional results on your immigration application. Their firm has maintained exemplary standards of professional practice and will give you peace of mind. You want to immigrate. You want peace of mind. Or you're here and you want to make the process of getting established in Canada easier Katy Kavandi Immigration Services helps you out you can rely on them for advice and representation so also Katy Kavandi Immigration has officially obtained the agency for the American University of Antigua College of Medicine the AUA throughout Canada this university offers a medical program that serves international students who are inspired to become doctors in the USA Canada UK or other countries and enables graduates to apply for residency and fellowship throughout these countries and then apply for permanent residency. For more information, you can go to immigration on Instagram, Kavandi Immigration Services. Check them out. Kavandi. I'm insecure about whether I said the name right. Did I say it right? Yeah, you said uh, it right. Yeah. Kavandi. I said it a number of times too. They say if you repeat it, yeah. It helps. Mm. Then the clients remember it. <laughs> Next time they want to immigrate, they go, right. what was that yeah. name again? How about Katy Kavandi? Sure. You know, speaking of names, you know who uh, one of our favorite uh, guests uh, who's been on this show, iconic singer, songwriter, recording oh. artist? Which one? Anybody? Which one? We've had a few. Well, who's who's amongst the biggest that we've had Farmers. on? Farmers. Farmers. Did you know the Farmers is coming? Yeah, uh, to, yeah. yeah he's right. got his first live gig in a while. I got to announce this because I'm just so excited about it. It's, it's actually in Canada. That's in right. fact, it's a stone's throw from Toronto. It's in Oakville, mm-hmm. which is kind of in the greater Toronto area. Next Saturday, November 27th Ooh. at the Meeting House Theater in Oakville, you can see Farmers Aslani, his first live show in a while. Wow. I'm so stoked. I, I will be there. And you know who I got tickets? I'm going. You know, I'm taking a hot date. Who are you taking? My mom. Oh, yeah. that's so, so lovely. She's a big, uh, I don't know if okay. she knows yet. I should take I my mom, actually. You should. Yeah, she's in town. I think, actually, Ponta the Artist is taking her dad. Aww. I mean, not that it, you have to take <laughs> so your parents. Take your mom but, and dad. <laughs> <to> <laughs> the well, I was actually day. thinking about the same thing. I'm like, I should take my parents. <laughs> you should. I mean, it's a beautiful. Let's it's all a, take our parents. Well, <laughs> it's, I mean, <laughs> with Farrah Mares, it's somebody that my mom and I both love, right? That musically, mm, I mean, it's yeah. a common ground. Like, it's a, I can't take her to a Radiohead concert. I mean, yeah, I mean, she wouldn't 
wouldn't mind it. What's but, the date? Yeah. It's next. Next uh, Saturday, November 27th in Oakville. Okay. Beautiful Oakville, Keon. It, it is beautiful there. It is. I agree. Sure. It's not far from Toronto. Yeah. All the Torontonians. I think there's still tickets. I don't care. People should go and run yeah. and get these tickets. So this is his first concert post-pandemic? Yeah, or? I just checked them out on Instagram because I was trying to check the date to make sure I got tickets and stuff. And then he... Uh, and then he says, uh, hey, guys, I'm coming out li- my first live show in a while. So wow. I guess, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's a big uh, big comeback uh, show for Farmaz Aslani. Um, the Contemporary History of Iran appears on Thursdays on this program. Uh, and we just had the story of Kehan mm-hmm. last Thursday. And um, it's gotten a lot of attention. You know, a lot of people have a lot to say about Amir Tahiri, That's who right. was the executive editor-in-chief of Kehan. Sometimes we do these history episodes and we have a historian or somebody looking back at it who gives us context and has the information. And then sometimes we have somebody who was there, who yeah. was, you know, uh, actually, a, a, you know, a giving, telling us the history from a first person uh, account. And uh, that's the case with Amir Tahiri. Really interesting episode. Do check that out. Uh, last Thursday's episode of the Contemporary History of Iran. That's on all of our Rook platforms. And um, coming up this Thursday, the Siakal incident. Mm. The Siakal incident. Some people will know what that's a reference to. If you don't know, it's very interesting. And uh, the full title of that episode is The Siakal Incident and the Failure of the Left in Iran before 1979. Excuse my ignorance. What is the Siakal Incident? The Siakal Incident is in in 1971, Mm -hmm. uh, there was a a group of guerrillas, Marxist guerrillas, Mm -hmm. who tried to launch an attack on uh, who were revolutionaries Mm -hmm. who wanted to... uh, who opposed the Pahlavi regime? Mm, okay. They failed. In fact, they were all rounded up and right, okay. and they were eventually all killed. Yes, Spoiler okay. alert. Now it's coming but back. Okay. it's considered an inspirational moment mm-hmm. uh, and a moment of change for those who really um, believed in that revolutionary ideology mm-hmm. at the time. Um, so, uh, because they sort of had this uncompromising, we're going to keep going, we're going to try and do this thing. Okay. So, this Siakal is a little town, I guess, in the north of north Iran, of Iran yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll get to that this Thursday. And we have letters based on last Thursday, Oh, yeah, right? yeah. We've had, it's been an exciting few weeks, I'd say. And just, just judging by the letters alone, you, you get the sense that people are enjoying um, right. contemporary history of Iran, as well as the ballerina we had last week. Uh, the, what was the, her name? The, Yasmin Nakhdi, right? The fabulous Yas- yeah, Yasmin yeah, Nakhdi. really inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to use fabulous, Kian. I know yeah, that's how dare your, you? That's yes, my yeah. thing. That's your moniker. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but she is fabulous. The incomparable. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yasmin Nakhdi. All right. Uh, Groovy Shia, Captain Reza, the fabulous Kian. Nobody smoke. Nobody should smoke. I was joking. Uh, everybody, we do not advocate smoking. We'll see you guys after our feature guest. My feature guest today is the author of a fascinating new novel that incorporates Iranian history, culture, and international romance, not to mention significant Iranians who come from his own lineage. But he may be better known to folks in the diaspora as an Iranian-American recording artist and the co-founder of Shaheen and Seper. Take a listen to this.
go. Little taste of Shahin and Seper and a nod to the Cat Stevens tune, Wild World. That's a, a song from their 1998 album, World Cafe. One half of that celebrated duo is Seper Haddad, my guest today. And Seper has been more than just a fine musician in the last few decades. Seper was born in Washington, D.C., then in around 1965, at the age of eight, his family returned to Iran, where he completed his elementary and secondary school, came back to the U.S. for college, and ended up at the University of California at Davis, and graduated with a master's in international agricultural development. He then moved from California to D.C. and began working for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, where he remained for decades. Seper has just released his first novel, a Hundred Sweet Promises. This is based on a true family story about a forbidden love between his grandfather and a Russian princess. The protagonist of the story is his grandfather, composer Nasr Sultan Minbashian, who would also play a role as one of the pioneering creators of the Iranian Conservatory of Music in Tehran. And right now, Seper Haddad joins me from Bethesda, Maryland today. Hello, sir. Hello, Gian. Thank you. And thank you for Rook Media for uh, giving me this opportunity. It's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. We've been planning to do that. You know, I read your novel months ago, uh, <laughs> thinking uh, we're about to do an interview. And then um, for, we, we've had to postpone a few times. So uh, I, I had to reread parts of it to to uh, get fresh for the interview. It's, it's so nice to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, it's also hard with you, Seper, to... My intention was, and what I talked to the team about, is to do an interview about your novel, which is rich enough in terms of the content of it and the, the, where it dovetails with Iranian history and your own lineage, that that would be good enough for an interview. But I, I feel like I can't just talk to you about that when I want to talk to you about your music career and your own story. So we're going to do a bit of, uh, we're going to gawty them, if you, if that's okay. Uh, <laughs> Sounds talk, great. Talk about a few things. I, I should start by saying it occurs occurs to me that we so often do interviews with Iranians who left Iran and had to integrate into the West, you know, especially post-revolution or around that time. And I often ask about the challenging process of assimilation. Uh, you've got the inverse trajectory. You were born in the States in 1957, and then you moved to Iran as an eight-year-old. Uh, tell me what that was like for you, integration in the opposite direction. Oh, very interesting, of course. Um, you know, I, I'll tell a little story, if you don't mind. I um, uh, had come out to go to college at, um, in California, and um, one evening I was studying late with this other uh, classmate of mine, which was a girl, and uh, we were in the kind of the student union of the, of the university. And it was like 10 o'clock at night, so we wanted coffee to be able to do one of those all-night studying uh, cramming sessions and um of course no place was open but there was a coffee machine there and so uh we went to the coffee machine and uh, you know or you know cream sugar all that kind of stuff and the cup comes down and um as the coffee was pouring in there i noticed the cup had some poker playing cards on it and i noticed that you can play poker with your the other person that's going to get a cup of coffee and kind of make a little bet and stuff and so as the coffee was being pouring into the cup, I told the girl, I said, wow, this is really amazing because I was impressed with the cup itself. And she said, oh, what, a culture shock? And I said, what kind of culture? She said, a machine that pours coffee. You've never <laughs> seen that before. I said, no, I'd seen that before. 
but I said, let me tell you a story about culture shock. It's not coffee coming out of a machine. It's when I went to Iran at the age of eight, and we had just seen the cartoon Bambi. And we wanted a pet here, but because we lived in a one-bedroom apartment, my mom and dad said, no, no, wait till we go to Iran. In Iran, there's so many... You can even take a dog from the street. There's so many dogs in the street. And of course, I never thought they're talking about stray dogs. I thought it's all Lassie and Tin Tins and stuff like that. By the way, by the way, Bambi and, Bambi was not a dog. But anyway, go ahead. Uh, no, no, right. Bambi was not. No, no. Because <laughs> Bambi is... <laughs> Bambi was Thank a deer. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. So uh, when we went there, I thought... My mom said people even have little little lambs and stuff in their houses in Iran and stuff. And I said, oh, my God, you know, if we do, we're going to call it Bambi and all that, even though, of course, it wasn't a lamb. Right. And so uh, as we get out to go to my grandmother's house, and she lived in the southern part of town in Shahpur, uh, Meiduna Shahpur is Shahpur Square. So a very southern part of town, traditional part of town, very religious. Um, as we came with the 12 other cars that had come to pick us up from the airport with tons of family i didn't even know i had this many family oh, oh no you're not um, gonna you're not gonna tell the story about a goat being uh compromised are you yeah oh. well i was gonna say that as i saw this little bambi cute little thing we're gonna call <laughs> bambi all of a sudden they picked it up said something in arabic and you know <laughs> sacrificed it for oh, our my. safe return of course oh, this is but horrible it freaked me out i mean at the age of eight i was about to go pet it and you know had named it and everything <laughs> so i told the girl that's culture shock not coughing down into a cup right and so that's the kind of reverse assimilation as you said that i had to experience like the first day i got there you know I, <laughs> little I, things like that you know <laughs> I, I i hate the sacrificing the the animal thing uh, uh there's a there's a scene from what i consider to be a, a quite a racist movie uh, not without my daughter where you know right. same thing they they go back and she's american and and uh they go to iran and that that, that happens and it's like oh my god and, and and i'm always uh you know i've always been so defensive about that because of, of course i know iranians and iranian culture and our history of invention and technology and you know academia and poetry whatever and so i don't want to just play into stereotypes so i remember these circumstances where i'll be like saying to a uh, an american or a canadian friend or something like that no iran is not like that they, they don't just sacrifice animals on the driveway and then an iranian friend will be like actually we do we we did, <laughs> we did that all the time you know you know i'm like no don't say it don't say that you know uh, so that, that, yeah, that certainly qualifies as, as culture shock. So tell me when you return to America in 1975 and stay thereafter, um, you've been a kid who spent the first eight years in the States, then you go and spend the next 10 years in Iran. Are you American when you return? Are you Iranian? Was it confusing? Oh, no. When I returned, I was total Iranian. I mean, I was just, I couldn't, you know, I studied agricultural development. I mean, the wrong thing to study in the United States because it's already so developed just to go back to Iran and help the, you know, agricultural industry there. Because all my friends, everybody I talked to, what are you going to study? Engineering. What are you going to study? Uh, mechanical engineering. Everything. A doctor, lawyer, or engineering. And so, I realized there wasn't that much competition in agriculture, even though I wanted to be an astronomer, really. But my dad kind of dissuaded me. He said, where do you want to live when you when you finally grow up? I said, well, with you guys, and you're going to be in Iran. I want to be in Iran. And he said, well, you know, right now, the only job for an astronomer would be to do a pocket calendar because we had no, you know, uh, NASA in Iran back then. He said, if you want to stay in the States, that would be great. So I went ahead and studied agriculture. Then the revolution happened. Then I didn't go back. And then 
So I had to go into the environmental field uh, instead of just pure agriculture, and that's why I ended up at the EPA. But by the way, when you say you wanted to be an astronomer, didn't you? Isn't there a story about you meeting Neil Armstrong, the the yes, sort of pioneer? Yes, I met them all three. So they came to Tehran uh, in October of '69, three months after they had gone to the moon in July. And they came on the world tour. And as part of the world tour, they came to the crown jewels or national jewels of Iran. And that was housed in the vault at the central bank of Iran, the Federal Reserve Bank. And so my father was vice governor of the Federal Reserve Bank. So, um, you know, a little nepotism and I got in. And so I got to meet my heroes, which were Neil Armstrong and of course, Michael Collins and Edwin Aldrin. So he had a ton of, uh, you know, secret service and uh, American security and all that there. And one of the people that wanted me to take a photo with him pushed me a little too close to him. And I bumped into him and he was my hero. So I said, I'm sorry. And but the way he looked at me with such disdain, it just <laughs> you think a hero, you know, it's my it was my hero. And he kind of was like, get, you know, get out of here, kid. And a bunch of secret service people kind of jumped thinking I'm you know, trying to get too close. But anyway, we were able to take a picture that I have. Yes, I think you might have seen that on Facebook, that I'm very proud of that picture. We've learned in retrospect that Neil Armstrong was, of course, a complicated character, but he was uh, certainly an important American astronaut. So you as an Iranian kid are meeting this American hero and you want to be an astronomer. You end up in agriculture. I mean, you've made this successful life in the U.S. working at the EPA and as a musician in Shaheen and Seper. I want to ask you about all that, but let's talk about the book uh, because you put this out uh, this year and let's get to this first. What, what, did you, what did you remember in 2010 when you visit Iran for the first time since you left, for the first time in 35 years, you go back to Iran with your family and when on that visit, you remember something that your grandmother had told you. Tell me about that. Right. Well, we were uh, down in Ferdosi Square in downtown Tehran, where Shara's Avenue, you know, is a major boulevard there, passes through. And my grandmother uh, uh, lived in an in a apartment building that really encompassed a whole block called the Arya building. Arya was the name of my uh, cousin. And so uh, my grandmother lived in one of the apartments there, two bedroom flat uh, facing Shara's Avenue. So it was very difficult to sleep at night because it was total noise all the time. Uh, and so we were driving in a taxi cab and we were passing Ferdowsi Square. And I told my wife uh, that, oh, by the way, this is exactly the place uh, where my grandmother lived. And then I started remembering the story. I said, oh, and the last time I visited her here, she told me this story, which became the novel. And um, then uh, to add to this part of the story, we went down to Shiraz to visit the city of Shiraz. And we got a cab to go to Persepolis, the ancient capital uh, of the Persian Empire, about 30, 40 miles away. And on the way, the taxi driver, noticing that I'm speaking English and trying to translate and explain everything to my wife and two kids who were born here in, in the States, uh, and he turned in the mirror, he looked at her and says, uh, you know, you are you from America? And she said, yes. And he said, welcome, welcome. We love America. You know that uh, as many everyone did that there with my wife. They, everybody was trying to be an ambassador of goodwill for America every time they saw her. And so they said uh, the, the man said, um, you know, it's broken English. And I said, where did you learn it? And he said in the garrison in Shiraz. 
uh, like 30, 40 years ago. I said, oh, really? My uh, uncle, General Fatolomi Bashian, at the time was a three-star general, Sepahbud. Uh, he is the commander of the garrison, and the guy just pulls the thing and uh, the car onto the side of the road. It's a, you know, not much traffic on that road between Shiraz and Persepolis. And started saluting me, said, I'm not going to get any money from you. This is an honor to have you in my cab. Your uncle was the one who brought the English language that we all learned. And he started telling me, really a ton of stories that i didn't know about my uncle some of them in a more polite form because later on when i asked some cousins they knew the same story but he had been very polite in front of my wife and so uh, my wife at that point says listen this 80 year old man driving a cab in the middle of nowhere he's also telling you that he remembers your family if you don't write these down they're going to be lost forever with our generation mm -hmm. and so that was one of the real reasons why i decided to document everything but i still hadn't thought about putting it in novel form uh, let's take this one step at a time because you I'm, I'm asking you a question and you're you're giving me your answers that, that i've heard you give other people too and long long yeah. answers first of all this story about your your grandmother uh, uh so the the novel is based on what your grandmother told you right before the revolution right you were with her you're, yes. you're this is before you come back to the u.s and end up staying in the u.s because you can't go back after the revolution um so so she tells you this stuff which is is quite an extraordinary story which becomes the spine of this novel about your your grandfather about how important he was this, this composer this guy who had helped set up the, the iranian conservatory of music but also this romance with uh the niece of the czar um why wouldn't you remember that story until 2010 well, it seems like well, quite no, an extraordinary no, I remember story it. and you know i used to tell some of my i remember in college i was telling a few of my friends that had russian background i said oh you know what my grandfather studied there and this is what my grandmother told me and most of the time people would look at me with surprise and a little bit of yeah sure you know and so i had not researched it well at that time to kind of defend it and you know i didn't know anything just the story that my grandmother told me and there was no google or anything so i couldn't really go check <laughs> until we came back from this trip to iran and i said you know what i'm going to research this whole story and talk to relatives and i started doing interviews with my uh uncle that was the minister of fine arts and culture the son of nasa sultan and he told me a lot of stuff. He sent me a bunch of articles. There were some gaps which I couldn't fill, but my uncle really, God rest his soul, he died a few years ago, unfortunately, but uh, but of course he was at the age of 100. So I was able to fill in gaps and actually get documentation that actually kind of corroborated what my grandmother told me so many years ago. You were talking about how, um, talking to your wife in, in Shiraz and, and that uh, taxi trip, and, and you've talked about the fact that you wanted to write this these things down for your kids, um, presumably as a document for them to understand their ethnic roots, their cultural roots, their background, their lineage. Why was it important? Why did you take the step then to to make an entire book out of this, as opposed to just telling them the stories and having that written down somewhere? Well, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure you might have, uh, you're a very good researcher, I'm sure, so you probably heard these other interviews, but it, it truly was t two things that made me want to really, first of all, to even go to Iran. You know, one was Rick Steves, uh, you've probably heard this, that he yes. had that program in 2009, yes. he went to Esfahan, and I saw it, and it was just Sorry, Rick so Steves is, a, is an American radio guy or something? Tell, he's, tell a, uh, uh, he's a Canadian, I think, but he's uh, in, uh, uh, in Washington State, uh -huh. and he's a travel uh, guru type guy. Uh -huh, so uh -huh. Rick Steves, he has millions of followers, and he does. So he did a show on Iran where he went to Esfahan. 
and it got a lot of great reception, uh, you know, especially on the public TV and these type of uh, audiences. Right. And and I totally missed Iran when I saw that. I really did. And I got very nostalgic. And then some kid at school had, uh, you know, um, told my kid to go back to Iran. And my kid came home, you know, born here in Maryland. And, you know, he was like at the time nine years old. And he, he said they'd tell me to go back to Iran. And I felt so terrible. And I thought, God, look, he thinks Iran is an insult to go to Iran. And so I called the father of that kid. And he was more ignorant than the kid himself. And I got in a big argument with him over this, you know, just <laughs> right. anyway. So I decided, you know what? I can't change everybody here who has a bad opinion or a, a wrong opinion about Iran. But I can maybe change my kid's impression and, and um, idea of what Iran is. And so we took them there. My wife was, of course, all on board. And so we took them there and I took them to Persepolis on purpose. I wanted them to see all this stuff, you know, the beauty of, you know, as we Persians know, the history and the sites and the food and the culture and everything. And they got to see it firsthand. And I told them, I said, so anytime anybody else tells you go back to Iran, first of all, you tell them, where do I have to run? Because it's not Iran, it's Iran. And second of all, <laughs> tell them it's not an insult to go you'd gladly go right and so that's why i then went to iran going to iran made me want to write this book and document it for them because i realized that you know this next generation doesn't know of the glory of that country and that culture they just don't know right and i wanted to keep it somewhere documented like this now i lucked out that it got popular became popular but this could have been one of those projects that I just write and goes on my own bookshelf, and that's it. No, and and, and a document. I mean, that it, it really is important as that to me. I mean, it, it's a it's an accessible read, and I know you've you've talked about fictionalizing the story to make it sort of accessible. It's and and there's there's the romance element. There's um, there's a lot of juice in there to keep the <laughs> as a page turner. But but really, I mean, what I appreciate about it is is a, as a historical document and and talking about the members of your family uh, your lineage who uh, played a major role in the development of of modern culture in Iran so one of them is your great grandfather uh, Sarar Moazaz Minbashian if I'm saying that correctly correct yes. and and he's your great grandfather how aware were you growing up that your great grandfather had composed Iran's first national anthem I was not at all. I didn't know. And what's so funny is that even later on when we did the Shine and Saper thing, I still never put two and two together until I wrote the book. When I wrote the book, I said, oh, you know what? No wonder I like music and we were, you know, we were able to do, you know, of course, Shaheen is so talented. Just anyone working with him would have probably become famous and popular. But um, really, I, I never put two and two together that, you know, yeah, my great grandfather wrote the first Persian national anthem and was the first director of the Persian director of the, uh, you know, uh, conservative, what they call Madrasay Music or conservatory. And then his son, Nasser Sultan, my grandfather, then followed him and became the head of the conservatory. Then Nasser Sultan's youngest brother, Olam Hussein, became the head of the uh, conservatory and started the Tehran Symphony Orchestra. Right. But with all of this, I still had no, I was clueless, you know. So when of, you were growing up, I actually want to play a little bit of this. I asked uh, uh, Shia, who is our resident uh, musicologist when it comes to all things Persian, and he's actually digged up, uh, he's found a, uh, a copy of the Iran's first national anthem. Let's play a little bit of this. Go ahead, Shia. 
So there, there you go. I mean, I, I, I don't know a lot about Iranian national anthems. You know, I grew up learning God Save the Queen in, uh, in England and then, oh, Canada. I, uh, so were you aware of this anthem, at least when you were growing up in Iran, or did you not even know the anthem at all either? I did not know the anthem, but if you hear, uh, if you remember the uh, King's anthem, the Suruda Shanshai, yeah. they've taken the main melody out of this and made that one. Ah. Dun, 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 you know, that thing, because the thing, that was the thing that, uh, the, the interesting thing in Iran uh, as a child was going to the movies, and all of a sudden, before the movie would start, you'd hear a ton of chairs just you know closing up ta, 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 like that like in a big auditorium because you'd have to stand up every time they play the national anthem before every movie showing huh. they did take a little bit of this that my great-grandfather had done to make the new anthem <laughs> why do you think you didn't know that your great-grandfather had written the iran's first national anthem uh i mean that's a pretty big deal do you, do you think it just got sort of lost in family history or why yes why would... it got lost because first of all there was a new national anthem now this surah shai that i'm telling you uh so that was a different national anthem that was the one everybody remembered and had to stand up to and then also uh you know the family you know when I look back on it, writing this book was an amazing journey for myself because, you know, one part of my family is Alayor Saleh, which is my great uncle on that side, who was Mossadegh's right-hand man and, you know, all this ambassador of U.S. Uh, Iran to the U.S. during Harry Truman's time. One side of my family was, of course, who I mentioned, Merta Palpud, the Minister of Art. Another one was the, the general that I mentioned. So there was so much uh, just news about these people that I was just focused on them. So every, you know, I knew what my uncle, who my uncles were, I knew who Alar Saleh was. So kind of didn't go back further in time, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like they had taken right, up all the right, oxygen. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and I want to, I'm going to ask you about uh, history in general, Iranian history in a, in a, in a few moments, because I, uh, I, I think it's through books like yours that, I mean, in with a dearth of other ways to really document or know about what happened in the 20th century and even earlier in Iran. Uh, it's books like yours that are important, not just as an enjoyable novel, but to learn our own, you know, history, our ancestry. The protagonist of the book is Salar Moazas Minbashian's son, Nasr Sultan, your grandfather. Um, yes. He was a, a renowned composer. Uh, first of all, how did he become such a brilliant musician when that pedigree did not really exist, at least in Western classical music in Iran at the time. We're talking about the early 20th century. Right. Well, in 1898, Salamazas takes Nasser Sultan at the age of 13. At the time, his name was Nasrullah. Nasser Sultan is actually a title that uh, Mozaffar Adin Shah gave to him. But um, in as a 13-year-old boy, his father takes him to Russia, and they lived together there for five years together, studying. Uh, Salamaz as the father, studying directly with Rimsky Korsakov. And uh, Nasser Sultan, I don't know, but I I read someplace that it was with Glazunov, uh, Alexander Glazunov. And so then Salamazas comes back to Iran uh, and leaves Nasser Sultan from his age of 18 to 20 in Russia on his own. And so the book actually starts out with Nasser Sultan coming back. And so he had studied there. His contemporaries there uh, were like Igor Stravinsky and, you know, um, people of that caliber. And so uh, he was totally enamored with this Western way of writing music and Western notation. 
And so the Mimbajan family might not be too popular with traditional Persian musicians for that reason, because when they came back, they were just pushing this Western idea of music right. and music education. But it's funny to me how, in in a sense, sadly, how little things have changed. You, you can certainly get a good musical education in Iran these days, but for the most part, people who want their, you know, kids to go past a certain level, send them abroad, you know, and, and that's, right. that's what happened with Nostra Sultan, right? That's, that's how he exactly. ends up in, in Russia. Well, and that's I mean, how he, that was really an amazing event because at the time I say that there were only a few pianos in Iran, even, you know, so, you know, nobody even knew how to play a piano. And so um, him going out at that young of an age, and so there were parallels between his life and my life. And, I, and as I say, uh, I was having a, a problem like writing more about Nasser Sultan because I never met him, but I, all I knew th was through my grandmother, my mother, and my uncle who kept telling me about him. And of course, after writing the book, I've met many cousins now that have additional stories that they tell me, ah. but they are also corroborating everything that I written in the book, which is amazing to me. I was going to ask you about that because the romance that Nasser Sultan has with the, the Russian Romanov princess, the Tsar's niece. Uh, yeah. I mean, so I knew you'd heard about this from your grandmother and and you're sort of digging up information. I, I am actually very curious. I know what it's like. You put out a book and, and all of a sudden you hear all kinds of things that you didn't know when you wrote the book. You say, oh, if, I, if I'd only known this, I could. it's a whole chapter. So, so what have you learned since releasing the book from either family members or, or folks writing to you or historians filling in the gaps of what you wrote about? Well, uh, they all corroborate. I, you know, because I was the only one in our family that was told this story. When I asked my mom, she said, "Yeah, no, I know my my father studied in in Saint Petersburg, with my grandfather, but I don't know about any Russian princess." So nobody knew. Nobody knew about this in my immediate family. However, I talked to my cousin who lives in San Antonio, and she is named Shahrazad, and uh, her nickname is Sherry. So her grandfather was the sister of Nasser Sultan. So we both have grandparents that were brother and sister. And she says she was named Shahrazad because Salarmaza studied with Rimsky Korsakov and they loved Shahrazad, the the uh, op, you know the music uh. classical music of Shahrazad. They had no. She said I knew the story and my mom knew the story. So on their side they had known this story, but for some reason my grandmother had never told anyone but me the story. It's. I don't want to spoil the novel for people. It, it is a story of um, unrequited love. I mean, it's quite. Uh, um, it's it's uh, both sweet and heartbreaking, and and told in a really um, engaging fashion. Um, this idea that I want to ask you about, you know, coming the, your journey of being of coming to America and uh, obviously working in D.C. with the EPA, and then and then becoming a well-known musician. Um, you said you didn't know a lot about your great-grandfather, but did you know that you come from a, a musical lineage at all? I mean, when you oh, said Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, I did, because my uncle, Fatullah the General, uh, was a songwriter, and he wrote many... Oh, he was a songwriter, too. Everybody's a songwriter oh, in your family. Yes, and my mom, she sings. I don't know if you heard her voice, but my mom sang, and my uncles played the piano, violin, and wrote songs, and so he wrote many uh, of the songs that like when i talk to 80 something olds they all 
you know, he he was the heartthrob for them back then. He has a song called um, On Zaman. And that song On Zaman got very popular over there. And so I recreated that song. I put a hip hop beat on it and some guitars and had my mom sing on it. Huh. And, uh, you know, produced that. <laughs> How does um, Shaheen and Sepher happen? By the, by the late 1980s, you know, you're a... You're a guy in his 30s, uh, early 30s. You've done, you know, you're here in the States. You're doing well. You've got, you're in D.C. You're working at the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, from what I understand, the story is you reconnect with an old schoolmate from Iran. How, how does that turn into launching a successful music career? Well, a very, very interesting story. So Shaheen and I knew each other from Iran's Amin, Tehran International School in Iran, and there's a thing, uh, I don't know if you know many Iran Zaminis, but there's a, you know, some people outside of Iran Zamin might consider it clicky, but I consider it as a totally a second family. Like all these people that I know from like 30, 40 years ago in Iran are some of my best friends now. Uh, you know, we have some mutual friends. I'm sure Fred Paravane, for example, in LA, he's, sure. he was my best friend since third grade. So I'm I'm always shocked when we talk. I say, you know, we've known each other for more than 50, 60 years. Almost. <laughs> it's amazing stuff. Uh, so I hooked up with Shaheen. Shaheen is an amazing guitar player. I mean, he's really unique. His style is unique. And, you know, you can play the guitar like a tar or oud or whatever. And so we grew up, you know, listening to rock and roll and pop music. And so we came up with the idea that, you know, there's too much competition in the music business for singing acts. What if we just did the kind of music we like, the rock pop with a beat, with his guitar being the solo instrument, as you heard in that initial uh, music piece you played, the, the Cat Stevens Wild World thing, and uh, sent it to a bunch of companies. And of course, rejection after rejection after rejection until uh, Narada, I don't know if you know Narada Record Company, but they wrote a very nice letter to us because everybody would just send us a two, three sentence, sorry, not interested, that kind of thing. We wish you the best of luck. Narada actually wrote a page and a half letter, said, you know, our marketing department has really listened to this and all that. Unfortunately, at this time, we don't see any viable, you know, market for this kind of music. And then six months later, we went on Higher Octave, which had Otmar Lieber. Uh, and we were number six on the billboard charts. Hmm. And so we always keep that too. Shaheen has a folder where he keeps that rejection letter and then the number six on billboard side by side to remind us to never give up. Right, right, right. <laughs> Do, the concept of, of the the music that you make, I mean, it was interesting that that big record you had in 1998 called World Cafe. Um, right. It occurs to me that this is the kind of music that um, it certainly is satisfying as foreground music, but it can work as background music. I mean, if you wanted to, uh, business-wise, it's a brilliant kind of music to create because it's music that can be played everywhere, you know, uh, and it's very pleasing. I mean, uh, I, I think about, about groups like the Gypsy Kings who, you know, had some hit songs but really made their bread and butter by creating music that can just be played by everybody in the background everywhere because they like it so much. Was part of the concept around what you guys did and taking the cover songs and rehabilitating and reimagining them that to have music that can just be played when people are doing other things? Well, initially, no. Initially, it was just music that we both thought sounded good. You know, we would sit together and record. I'd sit on the keyboards and computer and shine, would just have his guitar. He wouldn't even know that I'm recording. I'd press the record button and then we'd record all this stuff. And he'd say, thank God you didn't record it. And then the next day I'd play it for him and go, oh, my God, these are great. You know, that kind of thing, how it is. And so we just uh, music that we like. But then we realized the the 
kind of inherent wisdom in that that we had no idea about, which was exactly what you say. People li- love it when they drive, when they uh, read a book, even right. when they all kinds of background, as you right. as you right. correctly said. It's very pleasing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, how did it change your life when that started to become really successful? And by the 1990s. Well, uh, it changed my life, of course, in a great way because I loved music all along and finally I was able to do it. And then we went on tour and we tour in different countries and, of course, uh, I mean, in different cities. And, uh, of course, the, you know, getting the fan um, reaction is is what gives energy. Uh, But it also, um, you know, helped me with writing this book later on because I became very prideful, I think. You know, I kind of got a big head. My parents, you know... Uh, as I write in the book, uh, music is not a top choice, uh, the, at least the playing of it, <laughs> right. uh, to make a career uh, in Iranian families. <laughs> right, right, you know, right. They have ambivalent feelings towards it. And so even though I had, we had made it to number six on Billboard and every of our other albums had hit the top 20 of our genre of music in Billboard, my dad still would be more proud to brag that I was a scientists at the epa rather than right you know what i mean oh and they have music until a bunch of his friends from iran started asking for my music from him saying hey we heard it we want it and all that suddenly my dad was very interested in in all the music you know do you have cd please give me some cds so and so wants it this person wants it but always you know the career of you know some government job or doctor lawyer type would have been more preferable yes (laughs) yes i've been there yeah (laughs) So, so actually, let me play a little bit more of um, Shahin and Seper. This is actually a song that I, I, I was curious to ask you about because this is uh, from a little bit. It's a, a little bit more recent. It's from 2009, a song called Persia. What can you tell us about this? Oh, well, Persia is actually, um, it went on a compilation. That's why you see it from 2009. That's actually from our first album, A Thousand and One Night. Oh, Okay. Yes, and Persia is really an interesting song because it's almost an improvisation by Shaheen. You know, I just started playing a samba beat and uh, Brazilian type samba beat, and uh, Shaheen just went ahead and started playing this beautiful uh, melody to it. And we were going to call it something else again, clueless, not even thinking about it, until one day I played it in the car for my mom, and she said, This is beautiful. Call it, what are you calling it? I said, We don't know yet. Yeah, we're working time. She said, Call it Persia. Oh, we did. <laughs> that's that's really sweet. Your mom's integrated into the band in terms exactly. of that. Uh, let's play a little bit of this. This is Shaheen and Seper, the song Persia. of the piece Persia from uh, from a compilation record. That's where I found it from 2009, but I guess it's, a, it's from the first record by Shaheen and Seper. I'm speaking to Seper Haddad. Uh, let's come back to your novel, 100 Sweet Promises. Um, 
uh, it's a natural question to ask somebody who has created music uh, the difference between making music and, and, and writing a book. Uh, from what I understand, you stepped away from your job at the EPA in 2015 and dedicated about six years to writing this book. Now, I, I don't know if that's six years of just writing on Sundays or, or really spending every day of those six years in terms of the research and the creation of this book. It's, that's an epic period of time to create this novel. Tell me about it. Yeah, well, I thought it wouldn't take this long. You know, I thought it would take a year maybe, but it was, again, my ignorance because I had never written. I'd written very short, uh, like, articles for some new, I mean, web, um, Iranian.com and these kind of uh, outlets. But I had never sat down to write a short story or a novel. And so, um, you know, after that first year, uh, when I reread it, uh, what I'd written, I wasn't happy with it. And second year, third year, and then... Uh, I did some more research and found more details that could fill in those gaps. My uncle, uh, in a very timely matter, sent me a uh, article that exactly pinpointed this year of 1913 when my grandfather went back to Russia for one year. Because I didn't know he had even gone back for one year. I thought during that first seven years that he had gone to Russia is when he was the tutor to Princess Irina. But then I, I realized that, no, he had gone back for one year in 1913, right before World War I started. And that's when he was our tutor. Hmm. You know, there's a, a, when, when one thinks about this being fiction or, or fictionalized history, that is, um, the first thought is, well, that, that makes it a bit easier because you don't have to be a slave to history and get everything exactly right. You can say, well, it's fiction. I took some creative license, et cetera. But then um, that's counterintuitive because the, the truth is, I'm thinking about you, you're creating these conversations between Nasser Sultan, I mean, Bashian and, and, and uh, Irina, the, 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 the princess from, you know, 1915 or 1917. Yeah. How did you know how to create that dialogue? Well, uh, the basis of the story, again, was told to me by my grandmother. So my grandmother gave me very nice anchors. Um, for example, there's a place in the book where they're sitting side by side playing this piano forehand. Yes. I didn't even know what piano forehands was back then when my grandmother told me. She said two people sitting at the same piano and playing. And I thought it was very awkward. You know, I, I knew two pianos playing a two piano duet, but I never knew two people sitting at the same piano. And so she told me that they would practice the songs. And as my uncle's uh, wrist, uh, my grandfather's wrist would lay on top of Irina's wrist. He had told my grandmother when he had recounted the story to her that his heart was beating outside of his chest. He was so excited mm. and he couldn't wait for the next encounter where their hands might touch on the keyboard. And that's why that chapter I've called it the secret meeting place, because that's the place that they could meet and basically show their love for each other is on the keyboard of the piano. So you know, your grandmother had told you this in quite some detail, like that back to that conversation right before the revolution, she would have sat you down and, and uh, I mean, really spent some time with this. Right. She did. You know, the first time she mentioned it was, uh, of course, during the martial law stuff. So things got hairy in downtown Tehran. So we had to leave. She never was able to tell me until right when I was before I was coming back to the States. Uh, I went to go say goodbye to her and basically have a lunch with her. And during that lunch, she told me all this story, which was, uh, you know, quite detailed. Like she told me, 
you know, um, what the czar had said to them, what Irina had said, who had betrayed them, you know, all these things. And that's became the anchor for the story. Now, I fictionalized the private conversations of Nasser Sultan with Irina because I'm sure he probably didn't even tell my grandma that stuff. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but, but, uh, but how many are, are all that, like, there's some details, like the like the little French bulldog. Like, is that real or did you put him no, in there? No, that's, that's my own um, because, uh, you know, we're looking to get a dog and I was very interested in getting a French bulldog because I love him. And so I thought I'm going to put this dog in the uh, in the story as a way to break the ice because I didn't know how else to do it. What's it been like to put this story out to the world, Sepe? Or what 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 has perhaps most surprised you about the reaction to it? Well, uh, what most surprised me was that it actually got such a good reception. You know, because I never considered myself an author. I even feel uncomfortable to be honest to even say I'm an author. I'm much more comfortable saying I'm a recording artist because. I have this much material out there and I've performed live in many places, so I don't have to kind of uh, defend it, you know, anymore. But uh, and even though I was never classically trained, you know, that was the thing about music, which was so interesting, is that, uh, you know, I can't read notes or anything. So it's all by ear, as they say in Iran, you know, by ear. And so that didn't even give me a clue when I knew my great grandfather and all of them were into music that it. It really is in the blood, you know, in the genes. In Iran, they say it's in the blood. You know, I guess it is. <laughs> you know, um, I said I wanted to come back to, to history. And uh, I always think about my dad. My dad was born in Iran, you know, over 80 years ago. I guess now it would be my late father. I, I probably been 90 years ago. And uh, he was significantly older than me. We never knew exactly when he was born. I mean, he knew, but... There was no birth certificate, you know, and I always thought yes. that that's so curious, you know, like uh, uh, in some ways we know Iran as a modern country, but in other ways there's this lack of documentation. And when your when your grandmother tells you about the story of your your grandfather, she says at one point you say, "Well, I didn't know that," and you and she says, "You know, there's a lot of things you don't know." And I was thinking about Iranian history, even modern history of Iran. It, it's not easily documented i mean other than the politics and what we know about the last 50 years for example i can't find in english any comprehensive documentation of persian music uh the story of persian music and persian musical artists in the 20th century you know uh and the scary part of that is wondering who will tell the story of our ancestors and um, you know, not wanting to leave it up to say the current regime in power in in Iran to tell the story of what what of where it's all of what has happened in 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 the last uh, two hundred years, let alone before that. What is your perspective on this, as someone who's just written a novel that um, is deeply intertwined with history? Well, that's another uh, one of those things. That's the interesting part of having written this, as you said. What surprised you the most is that. Um, all of a sudden, I got invited to give talks at, um, you know, they don't just look at this as a novel. They look at it as actually, you know, a book that documents the history of Persia, especially what's been very interesting for per people has been the um, relation between Persia and Russia at the time. Because a lot of people don't know that. A lot of Americans here, when I go give talks at different places, like I gave a talk at the World Affairs Council, and they were surprised. They didn't even know. A lot of people don't even know that Iran and Russia had a very long border together. 
uh, let alone know that they fought two wars in the early 1800s, which uh, totally, uh, Iran lost a total, a lot of uh, property, basically, that at least it was um, under its, you know, sort of its governance, which was uh, Armenia and, you know, um, Azerbaijan right. and Georgia and Dagestan, you know, the Chechnya and all that. These were all under Iran's uh, sort of, uh, at least sphere of influence, if not actual control. And we lost them both in two wars to the Russians. So a lot of people don't even know that, that the Persians Russian. And so there's a love-hate relationship between Persia and Russia that we were sending people there to go study at their best universities, but then also they were attacking us and taking land from us, you know, sort of like a kind of sort of like the feeling some people might have with the U.S. today, you know, that this big, great power. But I, I had that reaction, too, where I thought, um, because, yes, we think of the migration patterns, particularly in the second half of the 20th, 20th century and beyond, as, uh, oh, going to America or maybe you go to Germany or uh, Australia or something. But but the go-to place, really, before that, before, say, mid-20th century, would have been Russia, right? That's where people... Exactly. For music, especially, St. Petersburg. Interesting. So how difficult is it to excavate history like that? Like if you set out to go, okay, I want to learn about, you know, the, the Tehran Conservatory of Music in the early 20th century. I mean, how hard a mission is that? Uh, it is difficult because a lot of the documents aren't in English. And so the blessing that I had is thank God for that Iran Zamin school that uh, even though we only had one hour a day of Farsi, we had to graduate and get the same Farsi, uh, you know, type of a diploma before we left Iran. And, uh, you know, we were able to read, f first of all, the poetry, a lot of the poetry that I put in there. So the English version is what I put in here, the translations by uh, Gertrude Bell. But, you know, we were studying this in class, the, the actual poetry in the original language. Uh, and also these articles that my uh, uncle would send me were all in Farsi. So I was able to read these that you won't find them on the web either. Some of these, you know, it's amazing. It's from magazines and things like that. And so it is not an easy thing, but uh, I'm happy that it all came together kind of like in a nice little package in this novel. <laughs> you wrote this book, at least the precipitant was for your kids, a document, as you had said. Uh, what have they told you about it? Well, they uh, had not read it, even though I put that in there as a kind of a a little push that you know guys this is dedicated to you you better read it they had not read it until just recently uh they both finished the book uh like i think a few uh weeks ago and the, i think they were more impressed than they thought they would be you know they came to me and they were like dad i didn't know you know god this is amazing and all this kind of stuff and it reminded me when we did the music with shaheen you know because they knew shaheen as amu shaheen because we were you know friends before they were born and so when him and i would do music you know they kind of didn't know they didn't know like if, if it's really just we're doing music here you know they weren't in the circles that would have known it until we went to iran and in iran in the shiraz airport this lady starts playing the music uh, when she found out i'm super shine super really loud and i left i was so uncomfortable <laughs> for the attention there and they then, it was at that moment that I think they realized, they said, oh, so this is more serious than just a <laughs> Our dad's a rock star, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah, yeah. And then also in Iran, they have all these documentaries on TV. And as you said, the music lends itself to that. So every documentary, anything on oil pipes, 
uh, pipelines, on the birds migrating from Siberia, all that was our music. All our music. Which, which by the way, I'm assuming you get no royalties for. No royalties. And what's funny is I went to a, I went to a restaurant and they were playing my music in there. And I went up to the manager of the restaurant. I said, this is really pretty stuff because I didn't want to say it's mine. I said, this is really pretty stuff. Who is this? He said, oh, this is a great group. I said, what are they called? He said, the Red River. The Red River. And so he showed me a CD. They had taken our songs and changed every one of the song's names. Like we have a song called Through Your Eyes. They had called it Journey Oh, my God. And released yeah. it as if it wasn't you guys? Or is it- they called it the best of Shine Sapphire, too. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, what do you what do you want to do now? Do you have the uh, do you have the writing bug? Is this is this something? Is it going to be another book or or, or after a respite? Does are you going to return to Shahin and Seper? Well, Shahin and I have talked about it to return for sure because we do have probably two albums of material we haven't released that just needs to be polished and we can you know uh, upload those. But uh, the book, what I'm really enjoying about the book now, and these are the rewards, of course, of, of this kind of endeavor, is these conversations, like the one I'm having with you and the talks that I give now in public. I'm going to California. I'm going to do a talk at, in Berkeley with the Diaspora Arts Connection in December. And so, uh, you know, the traveling to talk now that COVID's kind of dying down, hopefully, uh, is the very exciting part for me. This was the exciting part of the music when we got out there and to perform and to meet people. And so I, I'm going to enjoy this part of it for a little bit, do some music with Cheyenne, and then I do have another book already in my mind. Uh, I have some nice uh, stories that I had, um, had from my dad. My dad, unfortunately, passed away a few weeks ago. Oh, I'm sorry. But uh, he was, uh, the last few years of his life, uh, had macular degeneration, so he was legally blind. So when I finished the book, uh, and I wanted to send it to him. He couldn't read it anymore. So he said, do an audio book. So we did the audio book. And then when I sent it to him, he had kind of gone deaf. And then he passed. So he oh. never got to see it. I hope uh, in heaven, the library up there has one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's a, that's, a, that's a difficult story uh, about your dad. I'm sure he would have wanted to, to hear, hear the book. Actually, the audio book is very, is, it's like an English actor or something who does it, right? Yes, he's a voice actor, Shakespearean voice actor, yeah. Tim Theron. Um, listen, Sefer John, it's it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I'm I'm glad that this um, this book uh, became the conduit for us to to have this conversation, and I'm really actually grateful for the book. It's not just an engaging story, but um, but it was a real learning experience for me about that era of Iran, about uh, the musical context and the the um, relationship with Russia. I thank you for it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. I, I was hoping you were going to do real and not real, like to ask me something that was to ask whether or not it was real or not real in the book because most of the stuff is actually real. <laughs> I prefer to believe it's all real. <laughs> good, good, good. You're my favorite person to read it. Khaili <laughs> Mochakam, uh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time uh, and I, I look forward to doing this again. And by the way, uh, if uh, Shahin and Seper ever make it up to um, uh, Toronto for one of your gigs, uh, we'd love to have you in the studio. Oh, we'd love to come. Yes, for sure. Count us in. Thanks, brother. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Seper Haddad uh, is an environmental expert, a recording artist with the group Shahin and Seper, and the author of the new novel, A Hundred Sweet Promises, Seper Haddad. Join me from Bethesda, Maryland, in the United States today.
right, the microphone's back on for Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, and the fabulous Keon. How about that, Seper? Yeah. Enjoy that? Oh, I loved it. Such a cool guy. Very interesting. You know what he said when he was like, uh, his kids experience racism and they, they were told, go back to Iran. They I were told, told, go back to Iran. To Iran, yeah, which yeah, is, yeah. yeah. I, l- I love what he did, man. I never thought of that. You always think of like, confronting people and like getting as aggressive or like getting upset but what he said was amazing he's like yeah and then i took them back to iran to show them this is nothing to be ashamed of in mm-hmm. fact if anybody <laughs> tells that's you that's exactly why my parents took us every summer to like remind us listen like iran is not what you see in the news they yeah. took us to persopolis Esfahan, everywhere to enlighten us like this is who we are it's not what you see in the mm. media and it, persopolis it Persepolis, Persopolis. I don't know. In documentaries, I swear to you, they say Persepolis. That's, well, that's why it's like it's drilled into my head. Though, right? I know, Persepolis. E. So your yeah. parents took you to Iran? Iran. <laughs> to Persepolis. Yeah. But uh, sit there, man. Like, I, they took me to... Oh, my gosh. They, t- they took me to Iran so I would learn things like Persepolis and Shiraz. <laughs> what? What What did you... So it didn't same. work I at am. all. I went point. to Isfahan. <laughs> and Isfahan. Tab Rise. Tab Rise. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you all. <laughs> anyway, yeah. as I was saying yes. before, I was rudely. Sepher had done. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No. Th- this book. You. So you read it. I, I'm. I'm. Yes. Of course, I read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested. I'm wondering. I, it made me think. Like, how many other like incredible like out of this world stories are there within yeah. our diaspora that we just don't know about? And I'm so happy that he took the time to write. Well, this. also, I mean. W- <sighs> You know, we've said this a number of times, mm-hmm. and we do this with the we're part of our incentive with the Canadian, mm-hmm. uh, the Canadian, the contemporary history of Iran, yeah. is that there isn't necessarily an available resource of of Iranian history. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some, but especially in English, exactly. there just isn't. That much, you know, I mean, it's really, you know, there's the big events, yeah. there's the Pahlavi, the, the revolution, yeah. whatever. But I mean, honestly, there isn't. So, so history is written through novels like this or or through I'm so glad that he told this story because um, whether as I said in the interview whether you love the novel or whether it's your your bag or whatever it's the the point of it is you get to learn about these characters that are from our our that are impressive characters from our history they were were literally a part of history I would totally recommend you you read this book I actually want to and also read it to Reza so that he can (laughs) (laughs) yes please Okay, Reza, it's bedtime. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> uh, Shia, what did you make of Seper Haddad? Um, about the Shahin and Seper or about the Seper as well? Wow, that's good. Uh, yeah, there's two, I mean, a few things to talk w- about, isn't there? W- uh, while you were interviewing, I checked the uh, the plays of Shahin and Seper, and it, the number is huge. Like, they played a lot, and mo- more than a lot of famous Iranian musicians, actually. Mm. And it actually it came to my mind that it's a very kind of smart business plan especially at that time to create this kind of music that you can play everywhere you know Mm. i mean uh, you can play in the car while you are driving you can play in the cafe and although they it sounds like that's what just where they were coming from musically they weren't they didn't have that plan yeah but it is smart i agree with you Yeah. yeah And his, the, I've got to say something about Seper's energy is amazing. Mm. Like you kind of talking to him, you forget you're talking to even to an adult. I mean, he sounds like a teenager. Mm-hmm. You know his voice and I and know when you the, at the top of the interview when you were like he was born in 1957. I was like, oh, okay, he's making a mistake. It's 1975. No way. 
this gentleman sounds <laughs> but is he sounds shockingly young which is amazing i i i do you have a picture of him like it to see i do want to see if he looks young too <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll put up a picture on, yeah, on with the interview should. tonight yeah. actually captain reza you're supposed to be editing that i know so yeah well i can't do we'll the get show you the and picture edit at the same <laughs> time yeah. hey a big thank you again to kati kavandi and kati kavandi immigration services for making this edition of rook possible this is a full service immigration firm that offers all inland and overseas immigration services including temporary visas permanent visas pr extensions and citizenship applications caddy and her team are available to inform and assist you as their client throughout the whole immigration process if you want to come to canada or you're here and you need support you need an immigration counselor Kathy is your person Kathy kavandi immigration services find them at the instagram page immigration. Alright guys, it's Monday. That can only mean one thing. Letters of the week. I lost my voice. You know, you, You're a terrible actor, you, you know that? You know, you used to uh used to sit away from the microphone when I you know. do that. Now he's like right on the microphone. <laughs> All right, guys, back to work. So last week we had uh, part six of the uh, new series, The Contemporary History of Iran, and it was about the story of Kehan. So we had acclaimed journalist, political analyst, and author Amir Tahiri on the show, who... Uh, who was he? Let's see. He was the executive editor-in-chief of Kehan in Iran from 1972 to 1979. Why don't you explain for, in case someone is just coming to the show and doesn't know what Kehan is, what is it? It was an old uh, newspaper that uh, it came... It came out during the Pahlavi era, and uh, uh-huh. how to explain it? I mean, well, it was initiated by the Pahlavis. That's right. Uh, by uh, Princess Ashraf in yes. 1942. Mm-hmm. It was became the biggest newspaper in the Middle East, mm-hmm. and became a newspaper group by the 1960s. And then by 1979, it had become this massive newspaper. But of course, after the revolution. It was taken over, and it still exists, Kahan, but now as a uh, yeah, as an organ of the current regime, a propaganda feeding machine. <laughs> Some would argue it was always propaganda, mm. but for different uh, purposes. Okay. Others would say it was the best. Uh, it had its best years, and then now it's turned into uh, garbage. Yeah. Agreed. I'm, I'm one of those. It's people. good for cleaning like glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Clean glasses. But it used to be something quite respected. At least that's what I've been told. It was huge around yeah, the world, yeah. That's right, and people agree. So uh, we have a Amir Pormand who wrote, Don't be so good. Thank you for your wonderful program. Don't be so good. Don't yeah, so stop good. being so good. Wow. It's inappropriate. Wow. I love it. <laughs> Sorry, I cannot do this. <laughs> Shy can't help it. <laughs> it doesn't take much for me. Thank you, Amir Pormand. <laughs> yeah. Amir Poru. Amir John. Amir Jun. And then Mojgan Bigdilo wrote, Mr. Tahiri is one of the best. Thanks, Gian, for this interview. He's really, he's 
truly a, a, an accomplished, incredible journalist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's such a, it's always an honor to speak to him, to be yeah. honest. By the way, that was my mom's favorite interview of all oh, time. Really? She's been telling me for, for, my, for um, as soon as Brooke started, she's been telling me, you guys have to bring on Emir Tahir. Really? Emir Tahir. Really? Wow. And now that he came on the show, she's You didn't good. say anything to me about that being... <laughs> Pretty sure I did. No one listens no, you to didn't. me, though. I'm you sure You didn't say I did. that she... No, no, no. no, but no, I mean, you didn't say that she liked your, your mom. She loves it, him, huh? yeah. My mom actually really liked the interview, too, because it brought it had a lot of khaterat. Yeah, wow. she, that's right. It brought her back to Kehan, and mm-hmm. she was touched oh. it. I remember my dad, even though I was a little kid, my dad reading the weekly uh, airmail version. Oh. And yeah, yeah. Special. Uh, and then we have Atifa Tabish wrote, I am so behind to listen to all these amazing episodes. Don't go so fast. I'm in panic mode now. I can't yeah. catch up. <laughs> Please catch up. We're not going that fast. No, it's twice a week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Reza. Chob, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Rahim wrote to us. So he has a different view. He says, Amir Tahari is known for his conspiracy theories and controversial and non-factual writings. Not sure if inviting such a person to talk about history is a good idea. Mm. Well, it, I mean, it is true that Amir Tahari has had his controversies mm. and has been linked to conspiracy theories. That's not incorrect. But... Uh, but who hasn't? <laughs> <laughs> Including us. Yeah, I mean, right, I'm yeah. sure we've been linked to several different ideologies at one point. Um, and then uh, Zoya Katuli wrote, very informative. Thanks, Jianjan and Rook team. Hmm. All right. As well, last week on episode 154, we had superstar British dancer Yasmin Nagdi on the show. And of course, she's the principal ballerina of the uh, Royal Ballet in London. And... Um, She's the only Persian ballerina, to my knowledge. Or she is. That is a fact, correct? No, there are Persian ballerinas. But like to but that level. Yes. Yes, yeah. that's right. And, and of Middle Eastern background as well. Yeah. In as much as that she's Persian, you mean? But, but is that it's not, not a fact Persian. that she's the first no, Middle Eastern? No, she is Eastern. the only Middle Eastern person in the Royal Ballet. People, person of Middle Eastern background in the Royal Ballet. Okay, so yeah. not the like the first uh, principal ever. ballerina ever that is from Middle Eastern background. Oh, she might be the she first might be. Uh, that's ever, too. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's why. impressive. I don't know who would be... Uh, I can't think of any others. Other than Shia when he puts those <laughs> leotards on. <laughs> oh, it's so Thank good. you for that image. That's just wonderful. His black swan is oh, impeccable. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> 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 well, uh, Tuiraj Khosravi wrote to us saying, It was such a nice interview like always. I saw Yasmin's performance once in the Royal Opera House while I was living in London and saw many other opera shows and ballets. The Royal, the Royal Opera House was basically my second home for a while and I was always one of the few young ones in the audience of over 60 and 70 year olds. I do believe that stories in the opera and ballet are too linear and have been told hundreds of times, but the performers are real superheroes who amaze you with their voices and their physical and emotional moves. What a great letter. I love that. Yeah, thanks, Turaj. Yeah. Um, a username La Ramba, oh, Ramba. <laughs> saying Ramba. really interesting and enjoyable interview with Yasmin I became a big fan of her dancing during the pandemic after watching her performance in Romeo and Juliet and will be buying a ticket for Giselle the, the live stream on December 3rd it stays online for a month so you can watch and rewatch it anytime any time zone mm. Hmm. Mm, interesting. nice yeah 
Shahla Tahir wrote saying, Splendid program. Loved it as always. And then Azadeh Jorgensen says, Love the ballet. I'm following Yasmin now. So proud of her. Thanks for sharing this. Everybody should follow her. She's yeah, I great. agree. And then username Sheena Ballet Original, I'm assuming it's a ballerina oh. herself, wrote, Yasmin is my role model. I'm so proud of her. Mm. Thank you for this amazing interview. We got one here from Shia.BalletOriginal. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I love it. He says, Yasmin has been linked to many conspiracy theories. <laughs> I'm not sure bringing her on as an example of ballet. Is. Who could hate her, really? Who could hate a ballerina? I wonder. <laughs> well, not her, anyway. She's. I mean, she. You couldn't hate her. She's. She's so eloquent yeah. and, and has lovely. You know, yeah, she's absolutely really lovely. And so young too for a 20, 27 years. For a twenty-nine year old, she's young for a twenty-nine. She's actually old. She speaks. She speaks so eloquent, very eloquently yes. for a 29-year-old. Yeah, as someone who's of it, not a few years young. younger than you. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the way she speaks is... <laughs> that's what my dad been telling me. He's like, you speak really well for your age. <laughs> he says that's you? No, nah, he doesn't. Oh. I didn't think so. <laughs> no. My dad hasn't spoken to me in years. <laughs> your dad's here, isn't he? I know he is. Does your dad sound like you? Hey, how you doing? He, he, no, he? I actually oh, no. don't know what my dad really sounds like. To he doesn't talk much. Really? Yeah, he says very little, very few things, just the essentials. How is this like, person your father? <laughs> <laughs> right? Are you, you are. sure he's your father? I've been, I've been trying to figure out if I'm, I've been adopted, but they're, they're avoiding the question, like every chance. I'm like, ah, oh, what's the difference? We love you. <laughs> Does your, your, your dad speaks a lot, though, Shai, right? Your dad is. My that? dad? Yeah. Mm, no? No. See, actually, he recites. A few words? No, he mm. recites poem a lot. Oh, <laughs> that's so cute. We can speaking. tell whose father. Yeah, yeah, that is that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's who took after. Does he? Does he talk like? Oh, I, I, <laughs> like that kind of? Mm, yes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, what else you got there, Kia? Well, just in time for letter of the week. Letter of the week. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so what was it? Part five of uh, uh, the contemporary history of Iran was about the creation of Kanun. And of course, we had the founder and managing director of Kanun from uh, 1965 to 79, the lovely lady by the name of Lili Amir Arjumand. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that episode was probably one of my favorites. Mm, I It yeah. was so touching, so mm. special. I just... Between this, you and your mother, we should just quit <laughs> at this point. You've had the best episodes. It was just so, it was heartwarming. And you can tell by this letter I'm, I'm about to read. Right. So this week's letter of the week goes out to Nazila Rafizadeh. She said, I listened to this episode related to Kanun today. I know that two weeks have passed since its broadcast, but I must express my heartfelt gratitude to Miss Lili Ajmand and Shabanu Farah Diba and all those who participated in this great and valuable project. As someone who has been a member of Kanun in Farah Park, now it's Lale Park, for, for four years since I was eight years old, that is, since 1975, I must admit that all my interest and talent in literature and poetry was first due to Kanun and then to my father. After 45 years, now in your program, Rook, I realized what great and loving people founded and participated in the implementation of this unique project. Kanun made up an important and memorable chapter of my life. And now with all my being and from the bottom of my heart, I say out loud, thank you, thank you, thank you. 
And a big thanks to the Rook team for the Contemporary History of Iran series, especially the Kanun episode. Mm. Was wow. that not so beautiful? So oh, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I had no idea what the Kanun was, but the more I'm reading about mm. it, the more people write to us about it. It just really warms me. Had inside. a major impact on people's yeah. lives. Has a major impact. Still today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for that was from Nazila. Yeah. Yeah. Nazila Rafizadeh. Thank you so much Nazila. Thank you so much the fabulous Keon. We see you on Unmarried Persian Girls every That's Friday. Right. Launched last uh, last Friday. Look for that at upg.official on Instagram and uh, Unmarried Persian Girls on YouTube and other places. You can see Keon and the other hosts Shirin and Taroneh. That's right. All right. We look forward to watching more of you. This is full time for Rook for today. Thank you, Captain Reza and Groovy Shia. Of course. Well, Thank you for having yeah. me on the show. <laughs> Our website, Rook, <laughs> rookmedia.com. Rookmedia.com is where you can uh, link to all things Rook, including our previous episodes. The visuals, the funnies, the videos, it's all there, rookmedia.com. It's also where you can become a patron of our show. Thanks to the, to the amazing team who put this program and this network together. Savvy Roham, producer Susan, Super Parisa, Ponta the artist, the fabulous Keon, talented Anahita. Aray Mertad, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. Find me on Instagram and Facebook at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashir.